Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight for a session I'm very excited to introduce, the Unacknowledged Legislators. Our session today takes place on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Pay my respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge that you should consider the relationship that you have with the country that you reside on. Consider how much you know of its politics, its history, its culture, its geography, its language. And if you don't have that knowledge or relationship, I'd ask that you meditate on that just for a moment, what that means. Thank you. My name is Declan Fry. I'm a writer, poet, and essayist. Uh, my most recent work is a work of fiction in Another Australia, published by Affirm Press. And uh, I'm very pleased to be hosting tonight's event. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, said Percy Bysshe Shelley, and he meant it. He was referring, he was referring to the idea that a poet has revolutionary potential. And poetry has the ability, quite literally, to change ideas, politics, and the ways that we live. At the time that Shelley was writing, philosophers were included in his ideas, and it was in the defense of poetry in 1821 that he was working uh, with a time when Thomas Paine and Voltaire, Mary Wollstonecraft, were changing lives. The great poet Lionel Fogarty, in a line that's always stuck with me, says, caused us to be collaborator. And this idea of poetry as a collaboration, whether it is one that may dominate or one that can free you, is one that I believe in. There is no mathematics or special esoteric knowledge you need to understand poetry. Many people are intimidated, but the great thing about a poem is that it is a work of freedom and a work that has no bounds. Every time you try to put your finger on it, it will escape, and that is the liberating potential of poetry. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome first to the stage a person who I've said many times needs no introduction. His name is Tony Birch. He's the author of the best-selling The White Girl, which won the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Award for Indigenous Writing and was shortlisted for the 2020 Miles Franklin Award. He's the winner of the 2016 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing and Blood was also shortlisted for the Miles Franklin in 2012. He's written four short story collections, including Shadowboxing, and Common People, and his most recent works are a collection of poems entitled Whisper Songs and a short story collection, Dark As Last Night. Could you please give a warm, warm welcome to Tony Birch. Thank you very much. The clock is counting down. Little man. Search for you at night beyond the creaking gate. Old haunts, street corners, 
Back lanes dressed in rain, big sky darkness. Spoke soft words calling your name, echoes to glimpsed light. Fell with a dying moon, our whispered songs to you. Face hidden, you refused us. Mute, silent brother, you marked your loss, our hidden faces, morning, morning. Until you appeared, your brown pools, honey locks. In one hand a guitar, in the other a book, words of gold and music ever true. A song of promise, you sang sweet to me, I will be with you. Women, for Nina, who's my youngest daughter. They bust street corners, floral dresses, cleavage, lips, childbearing swaying hips. We watch from safety, outside touching distance, barely teenage boys with nothing to show for a wild imagination but school shorts and hairless skin. Early paper round, a woman naked in a window, a still Sunday morning, she turned to me and waved, smiled at me, her hair thinning, eyes hazel and naked open wounds in place of breasts. My nana lifted her skirt for me, varicose legs of factory standing shifts. She forced my hand to a jagged scar, a braille story of women's skin, the mask of men destroying love. Away. A warmed hollow of a shared bed, a place where you once rested, is away. Your breath singing, rising through morning air to fill the rooms of houses and the life of you, away. Fingerprints marking time on a kitchen table, scars of a door frame, a bicycle wheel creaking its windmill in the yard, a mother's hand sweeping through locks of hair to untangle and savour, away. And along a dusty road running away from home to where secrets are held in ghosting whispers, your crying feet leave no dance away. Sacred Heart. Schoolyard of scattered gusts, littered with frenzied tags, marks of soft-skinned boys, fine hair, delicate fingers. That's one of the boys, they're so cheeky. Delicate hair, lives of labelled comfort, this is their only rebellion. The pigeons no longer bother the shitting on slate church spires besides nuns' bathrooms. A peppercorn tree climbed to view the all-holy ass of a vicious headmistress long dead and gone. The flag of a diseased nation hangs limply above tales of abuse. Stations of the cross witness to touching here, probing there, cloaked acts all in the name of God. This concrete yard was once ours, the lanes and streets, crumbling houses, gutters to rusting rooftops now, unwanted, unloved, even by the lovers of coffee corners, steaming in houses that are sparse and heartless. Finding you outside Kyoto. Stone cats in red knits line a narrow canal. Sweetened water swirls, pots of fallen leaves, tannin-stained hands, awaiting a winter soon born. In the hills above this city, mist and mystery settle, 
climbing with you, weightless in the small of my back. Sweat trickles to skin, my heart suddenly shifts like a runaway clock. On the summit, snatching chilled breaths, I settle on a rock and wait for you. My body sways, stops, dead, away from the home I anchor to. Fear escaped me here. Finally, on this ridge of solid stone, you held me, you covered me, and we lay together on ground. Matinee. In the moulding gloom of the old victory pitches, carpets swirled and stained in the back stalls of lust where wild girls kissed girls. We rode chariots in the cheap seats of a suburban Colosseum along with the oil biceps of Charlton Heston. His left hand guns at home. He left his guns at home and found Jesus in Technicolor. We ate ice cream, fondled thighs and blue cigarette smoke rings while watching Tony Curtis in tights, our swashbuckling prince, four nil and counting. John Wayne, the self-righteous cowboy, waged a war on a veneer frontier. Each Saturday afternoon at two o'clock sharp, we were forever the circling Indians, content in our savagery. And finally... A poem, A Father Brushes His Daughter's Hair on the First Day of School, the longest title I've ever produced, for another daughter of mine, Grace. New Year, shoes and blisters, your growing pains a curse, eyes deep with worry, watching our hands dance. Don't worry, I whisper, you will be magnificent. You ask for a poem, a story of hair, and I write... You carry a field of light and care, tenderly, tenderly touched by this morning's sun. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to introduce the next poet, Ines Andrada. It's a real pleasure because, full disclosure, I was one of five judges of the Stella Prize, and Eunice was uh, shortlisted for her latest collection of poetry, Take Care. But her first poetry collection was also widely acclaimed. It won the Anne Elder Award and was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Poetry and the Dame Mary Gilmore Award. Uh, I'm certainly biased, but I can assure you Take Care is an astonishing, astonishing collection. Eunice was born and raised in the Philippines, she currently writes and lives on unceded Gadigal land. Could you please welcome Eunice Andrada? Thank you so much uh, for that introduction, and thank you so much, Tony, as well. When I read there were 170 women seized from brothels in the Gardenia district, loaded into police wagons, and crammed into the hull of a ship I wonder if they held hands or prayed, if they cried when their lurching cage docked and when next morning they were forced to till the dizzying fields. I wonder how they felt when told it was a waste for pleasure to bear no fruit, how they must instead keep the earth fertile with their hands. I wonder about the small protests if they slashed open the mouths of green coconuts to drink in the juice in croaking afternoons, 
If, while wrenching cassava from the dirt, they spat jokes about the men who must be asking for them. If they sang ballads under their breath while they worked. If they made love to each other and did not wait for the yield. This is the title poem of my collection, Take Care, um, which is a meditation on the ways in which the care of Filipino women is commodified and exported overseas. Um, and no matter where I am in the world, I always look for uh, Filipino communities, more specifically Filipino women, who are often my compass wherever I am. Night terrors descend as I sleep in Jerusalem. A woman offers salvation in the morning. At the Filipino grocery store, she eavesdrops into my conversation at the register, catches me by the steps, and then introduces herself. She comments on my weight, the bones beetling from my wrist. I must go to her party that evening and eat, so she texts me the address. Her guests stream in two hours late, their tired relief at seeing each other when their days off align. They shiver as they crowd her apartment, cozied by the warmth of food reheating, the smell of liempo, courtesy of the Russian grocery store. Neglecting the coats suspended mid-air like mocking phantoms, it's almost like we are meant to be here where Christ himself had lived and labored. Some had arrived to care for Holocaust survivors before I was born, now past the age of birthing their own. Some don't plan on going back, their children old enough to be cut off from Western Union payments. They recommend churches I must visit, the ones where sermons are most convincing. On the hissing TFC, Kuya Kim introduces an endangered species of eagle. The child actors marvel according to script. And I remember the Palestinians being killed and forced to leave. My titas and titos delivered to their land as carers, taking care, caring, taking. Over the pop biology lesson on TV, everyone shouts for attention the night's dispersal marked by chimes of ingat. We spill onto the concrete, listening for what the wind might corroborate. Moonlight settles viscous like the grease of machinery. They tell me to ingat with the men, the checkpoints, the soldiers, take care, take care, take care. In my temporary room, I let myself rest, believing I could be safe. Trick Mirror. In horror, the audience clicks out of Zoom. I do not let the shame creep up to me. Two men keep their names and invade our space. They flaunt a photo of a brown woman, her legs spread, magnificent dark vulva gleaming on screen. And the participant number crashes. I begin to resent those who leave, disgusted by the way bodies like mine can corrupt a room. 
The men dagger their taunts, panels eclipse, domain reformulating. The woman jolts against her static frame. She blinks out of a reverie, processing. Motion resurrects her in increments. I move closer. She mirrors. In the background, voices swarm in their indecipherable whir. And the woman traces her thumb over the lens, verifying her reflection. We do not banish one another. Now bored of executing assault, the men blip out of view, a slurry of black in their wake. The screen pivots to my face, the making of apology. She lingers to hear the poem. I don't know how to begin. The sunset muted by the nebulous gray, my hand leaving theirs as we walk beneath the eaves of the monastery. Depending on the legend you believe, they say Adam's skull is buried beneath these floors, and from here grew cedar, cypress, pine. And from these they collected the wood to build the cross where Jesus was crucified. And he too came back. We are the only ones here to witness a return. They crumble easy, these structures erected on the heads of men. I want to hold something without a burial. I ask the olive trees what will be made of my love's bones, cedar, cypress, pine. Let me be one beam in a great arc, carrying our hushed and thunderous animals, even the beasts trained for burden. The future of my love is shapeless. I do not prepare for death. Thank you. Eunice. I, I felt the need to say have mercy many, many times, but that is merciless poetry in the best possible sense. Thank you. <laughs> And it was an absolute pleasure because I've never heard Eunice read uh, live, aloud, and in the flesh before, so thank you. Our next poet, Sarah Holland Batt, whose biographical details I need to look at briefly, uh, but I actually don't need to because I'm enjoying so much her latest work, The Jaguar. It's just been released. It's an astonishing, astonishing collection in a career that I thought had already run out of any more capacity for astonishment. Her lyric poetry, since I first read The Hazards, has transported me time and again. And as well as uh, The Jaguar, she's also a critic and editor. Um, her collection of criticism, which is the column she wrote in The Australian, have also appeared from University of Queensland Press, entitled Fishing for Lightning. She's currently the 2022 Judy Harris Writer in Residence at the Charles Perkins uh, Centre, the Uni of Sydney, and a professor of creative writing at the Queensland University of Technology. 2016, she was awarded the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry, and I cannot urge you enough to garage and buy um, the Jaguar because it is an astonishing collection. Could you please welcome Sarah Holland-Batt? 
Thanks, Declan. Um, these poems were written uh, in the weeks and months after my father died, and it was, we don't read poetry often about those moments at the very end of life. Um, and so these are my attempts, I suppose, to write into that experience. Um, I'll start with a poem called Time Remaining. Like rolled beads of mercury, silver bubbles fly up silently in the mineral water by my father's bed. A bag of Hartman's solution hangs in the air like a sling of trapped rain. A chartreuse teardrop blinks on the infusion pump's screen. The gauge reads, time remaining. In this void of time, in which my father remains, I want to say, is remaining, present continuous. He returns to me. Hello, sweetheart, he says blurrily. I'm just trying to get the damn thing working. And as if I can see what he's seeing, I ask, is it plugged in? He says, I'm beginning to wonder, and he's gone again, eyes swivelling through the morphine, rolling in the mulberry velvet of it. And I can see it's true. My father is beginning to wonder. He is at the verge of something. He is only starting to comprehend the shape of, as if he's standing at the delta of a huge muddy river mouth where the mackerel-backed sky and water mirror each other's enormities and the eye cannot find the horizon between them, a demarcation known only to those who wade in, full immersion. It is right that at the end of his life, my father's final feeling is wonder, not awe, not joy, but wonder, cousin of astonishment and doubt, which in the Old English also means to magnify the way his time remaining dilates and shrinks, is made both infinitesimally small and infinite, a day, an hour, a minute. The next poem I'll read, I'll read this one partially in honour of the fact that the voluntary assisting dying laws have just been passed in New South Wales in this state on Thursday. Um, and as anyone who's seen a loved one die, voluntary assisted dying has always existed behind the scenes in hospitals, but it's wonderful that people who need it can actually access it. And this is a poem about the, um, that, that space in between. The kindest thing. The doctor with an Armani model's jawline is brisk when he tells me the kindest thing is to withhold antibiotics. Pneumonia is the old man's friend, he says, his stare so piercing, I feel compelled by his beauty. He is almost shining with charisma and vitality. This man who coaxes patience towards death like an emerald boa, stretching its pink jaw by inches until the glass frog is entirely inside the snake's head, subsumed into the hypnotic knot of its body its scales flexing electric green as new leaves, its white lightning bolts rippling and contracting. Or like the sinister musk blossoming of an orchid mantis, 
limbs variegated like bolotti beans in flecked rose and cream, swaying like a silken flower to lure the dreaming crickets in. The kindest thing is to hand yourself up to death's calling. I know this, but I'm not handing myself up. I'm offering over my father, tenderly unhinging death's jaws until he is swamped with fever, his pupils tracking some invisible thread as he eases into unconsciousness, his eyes bright with the knowledge of one who senses he is being carried away but does not know why or where. And finally, I'll close with this poem, which is called The Gift. In the garden, my father sits in his wheelchair, garlanded by summer hibiscus, like a saint in a 17th century cartouche. A flowering wreath buzzes around his head, passionate red. He holds the gift of death in his lap, small, oblong, wrapped in black. He has been waiting 17 years to open it and is impatient. When I ask how he is, my father cries. His crying comes as a visitation, the body squeezing tears from his ducts tenderly as a nurse measuring drops of calamine from an amber bottle, as a teen at the car wash wringing a chamois of suds. It is a kind of miracle to see my father weeping this freely, weeping for what is owed him. How are you? I ask again, because his answer depends on an instant's microclimate. His moods bloom and retreat like an anemone as the cold currents whirl around him, crying one minute, sedate the next. But today, my father is disconsolate. I'm having a bad day, he says and tries again. I'm having a bad year. I'm having a bad decade. I hate myself for noticing his poetry, the triplet that should not be beautiful to my ear, but is. Day, year, decade, scale of awful economy. I want to give him his present, but it is not mine to give. We sit as if mother and son on Christmas Eve, waiting for midnight to tick over, anticipating the moment we can open his present together. First, my father holding it up to his ear and shaking it, then me helping him peel back the paper, the weight of his death knocking. And once the box is unwrapped, it will be mine. I will carry the gift of his death endlessly. Every day I will know it, opening in me. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. I, I might mention that Sarah, and I don't think this is indiscreet to say, is quietly celebrating the departure of uh, Richard Colbeck as the Minister for Aged Care. It is public knowledge. It is on Twitter. <laughs> I had the enormous pleasure of meeting Maddie Godfrey for the first time today over breakfast. 
And I think it might be the case that we were both on Wajet Country in WA at some point in time. Uh, she's a writer, an educator, and an emotional feminist. They perform poetry at Sydney Opera House, St. Paul's Cathedral, and Glastonbury Festival. Madison is a previous recipient of the Cap Musket Fellowship, the Varuna Poetry Fellowship, and a WA Youth Award for creative contributions to the state. She's completing her PhD on Wajak Noongar country and has a rescue cat named Sylvia. Could you please welcome Maddie Godfrey? Hello. Um, all of these poems were written on Wajak Noongar Buja, and I just want to start by saying my gratitude. When I grow up, I want to be the merch girl. Sighing like a swimsuit model who got fired yesterday. Boyfriend's band shirt tied on one side. Silver belly ring aligning with the trestle table, glaring at her Nokia. Permanent marker forearms. Later, the merch girl leans over my sister's sink in the graffitied bathroom, smudges her eyeliner with precision, undoes her middle part like a top button. I don't know if she goes to school or plays an instrument, but I've seen her fit a man's entire tongue in her mouth without flinching. I want to advertise Gildan shirts and burnt CDs. I want to look grown up enough to trust with a metal box, want to angle my hips like armrests, want my shoulders mapped by the longitude of lacy straps. She's always adjusting a bejeweled handbag, while my backpack bulges with a water bottle and a glad wrap snack. When I grow up, I want a man to ask me to sit behind his pride while he sings about my thighs to a room of girls with black gauze turning their legs into ladders, blinks with only one of his eyes. Epilogue, merch girl, the first time. Real story. She protected the stock while he protected his image. How expensive would it be to explain the truth of the teenage girl in his passenger seat, unless she was useful, an enthusiastic employee, earning an apprenticeship in monetizing longing? He sold more shirts when he was single. If her youth was stored behind the moat of the trestle table, no customers could reach out hold it up to the light, say, something about this doesn't feel quite right. Thanks. Pretty sick. Uh, content warning for mentions of menstruation, um, endometriosis, and sexy stuff. Been watching women in romantic comedies toss tiny handbags over their shoulders, laugh, without smudging their gloss. They suck lollipops noiselessly, as if silence is true seduction. Sometimes, disclosing my illness feels like coming out again. I look too young to be this tenderized. My birthmark not yet faded, my freckles unironic. I believe that a body in pain is a body in the opposite of freefall. In the film's second act, the protagonist pretends herself someone else, not to acquire attention, but to be successful in ways that can be recognized by strangers in train carriages. 
Last week, I answered a work call while wearing a surgical gown, my underwear bloodying a plastic bag. Mimicking filmic femininity, I recited a dialogue of betterment, poured wellness down the plastic pores of the phone line, as if my womb would simply unscar itself. On dance floors where nobody knows, it is easier to convince myself that my hip clicks like a metronome, not a clock. This chronic body, a betrayal I am trying to warm towards. An apartment with damp walls that I stay homesick for. When I fall in a ball gown, does it soften the impact or just soften the sound? A student exclaims, you look like a main character today. When I enter the room, red lipsticked, a louder mouth collaged over my own. Despite fake pockets, aesthetic signifiers of fertility still receive more speaking roles. If I were a romantic lead, my pain would be a plot point, deserving of dialogue yet damsel defining. I don't long for arch redemption, let sick stay ordinary, an inconvenience carried in my cutest clutch, something tactile that can be folded into squares like my grandfather's handkerchiefs. If my body falls from a roof tomorrow, it will still be a body in pain only, falling. When I confess the chronic of my illness, new lovers reply to a wounded animal. The signature scent that makes me feel sexiest contains musk, an ingredient derived from hunted deer. Each time I prioritize desire, there are consequences. An evening spent swaying makes my joints protest the morning. I sip pale ale and each vertebrae flinches. I make love and make pain simultaneously. I perch on the priority seat of public transport, wearing stairs, they say, a priority body couldn't possibly paint itself pretty. To be, so, to be believed, we must be so sick that mirrors forget to include us. Otherwise... We are merely protagonists. We are merely actors playing faulty protagonists who forgot to get better before the film's final kiss. Thanks. No clapping. No clapping. I have to fit one in. Quick, 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 quick. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Okay, uh, this is one called The Femme Fatale Comes Home. Um, it's from my upcoming collection, Dress Rehearsals, which was just announced. Um, so it'll be out next year. The femme fatale goes home. How boring to be beautiful forever. I walk in on her dancing with legs bent and posture crumpled, a mirror, a mirror placed face down. She is dangerous in her defiance. She burned the birthing books. She wore only the apron. She moves her shoulders side to side, a knife in one hand and a lime in the other. She cuts the fruit in her palm and carefully cuts still swaying. Does she ever get to dance without a man or his camera? She gallops clumsy loud towards the dining table, squeezes juice into a bourbon glass. She gulps and opens her mouth wider than I knew she could. Her burp is a prayer I feel guilty for overhearing. A confession shaped like air. What purpose would a throat have if not an elite room that men can enter? If a woman is a speakeasy, who decides the password? On my living room carpet, 
She drags her bare feet and sips her drink and squints her eyes and slumps her shoulders and disobeys baselines and unclenches expectations and wiggles her butt like a child playing musical chairs and spills her drink and flings her head back and remembers her mouth and still and still no siren song comes out. Thank you so much. Wow, thank you. Maxine Beniba-Clark is the ABIA, ABIA, and Indie award-winning author of over nine books for adults and children, including the critically acclaimed short fiction collection, Foreign Soil, a best-selling memoir, The Hate Race, and a poetry collection that won the Victorian Premier's Award, uh, Carrying the World, her latest collection is entitled How Decent Folk Behave. She's also the editor of the Best Australian Stories of 2017 and Growing Up African in Australia. Could you please welcome Maxine Beniba-Clark? Thank you. Uh, I want to acknowledge the rightful owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and uh, to honour all of the stories that have been told on this land up until this day. Uh, this next poem wasn't intended to be part of my set. Um, someone wrote to me and asked me to read it, so if you're here, this is for you. Um, it's called Communion. If hell exists, hail Mary full of grace, then surely they have lived it. And hail Mary, Mother of God, there is a special place inside Rome's gates for men like Pell. They say his shadows fall over communion goblets, his crisp white collars bleach bedwet horrors, his swishing long church robes conceal the Sunday darkness, of which they, children, shiny shoot and trembling, dare not dared not speak, but now they have. And Hail Mary, Mother of Mercy, give them strength. Hail Mary, bring them peace. And all Hail Mary, Mirror of Justice, we believe them. We believe. I had to take the name out of that in the book for legal reasons, so I'm glad I've been able to say it today. Uh, my next uh, piece I'm going to read is called Things About Dying, also a, a, in celebration of the voluntary assisted dying laws passing. In my home state now by law, those leaving us can tread gently, usher themselves towards the light in the dignity they see fit. And I can't remember all of their names. They and I were strangers. But when I heard, I thought of them. Like the kind-eyed man on the second floor, slight form wasting beneath thin hospital sheets, every morning smiling hopeful, saying, lass, today might be the day. Week after week, drawing back from the pain, turning away as I quietly brought the breakfast tray in. My friends and I, we were all going to be somebody back then. Every one of us had a hustle to an end. Me, 
I work the hospital kitchen to fund the degree. Eight hours a day on your feet, hot plate burns, clocked meal breaks, industrial dishwashers that could take hands off and once did. 200 kilo trolleys to push six days on, three days off, from November to March, from age 18 to 23. It got me here. But I know things about dying that would haunt your dreams. We were always the first to know down in the plating room. We knew before the doctors did, when the little freckled girl with the bald head and crooked smile left jelly off her order sheet. The leading hand that afternoon was on salt, pepper and cutlery. She yelled down the line in a shaky voice, no dessert for bed 14. Nobody spoke for the rest of meal prep. And after the trolleys were loaded, she gave everyone a break. We went outside and passed round cigarettes. And this uh, last poem I'm reading is in celebration of last night and hopefully a different viewpoint on the arts amongst everything else. <laughs> it's called The Memory of Your Better Half. It's a 10-year-old brown girl, already weary from the world at large, somehow stumbling, stumbling upon her copy of Maya Angelou's And Still I Rise. Understanding as she reads, yes, my honey dumpling, for the very first time that self-love, black love, you love, is the only way a child, girl, woman, person will get out of here alive. Art is the memory of your better half. Fifteen glorious years together, she fought hard but slipped away after the first round of radiation. It's the kids the next morning staring at you with fear written on their tiny faces like, where's our mama gone? You don't even know how to make French toast, much less do our braids. Art is six months after that, when you're through the worst and your song comes on the radio. This time it makes you smile, though. Her in that hot pink dress, twirling to the chorus all the way down the aisle, and how her blunt fringe brushed your shoulder after she kissed you and became your wife. It's how the harmony makes you feel as you're folding the school clothes the way she would have liked. Art is the closest one can get to God and in fact, exactly what it means to have a soul. Art is the heart of all that we are. The markings on the wall and who walked here and everything that came before. Who cares, thinks the Prime Minister, where we stick art in the portfolios of the nation. It's not about coal power or curbing welfare or wealth generation. Here is a man not nearly enlightened enough to understand how closely they are linked. That painting gives pennies back to Medicare. That old-time jazz, that opera eases congestion in the hospitals, helps our old folks live longer in their own homes. The cultural and creative activity pumps more than $100 billion into our economy. That poetry is why that kid, so close to falling through the cracks, even gets up and goes to school. That sometimes the books in the library are the only good place you have to go. And there is nothing else on earth like the hushed, leaning forward together crowd 
as Bangara dances another show. Chills. <laughs> Literal chills. Sarah M. Saleh is a poet, a writer, an activist, and the daughter of migrants from Palestine, Egypt and Lebanon, living on Gadigal land. Sarah's writing has been published in English and Arabic in various outlets, and she has spoken and performed in classrooms, in community spaces, and at festivals nationally and internationally. In 2021, she won both the Peter Porter and the Judith Wright Poetry Prizes. Her debut novel, Songs for the Dead and the Living, with a firm press is out next year. She's a proud Bankstown Poetry Slam, Slam Ambassador. Could you please welcome Sarah M. Saleh. <laughs> An event would not be complete without the ululating, apparently, <laughs> in the back. I was told this is a power move. It's actually, I'm just hot. <laughs> oh, thanks. Salam <laughs> alaikum. That was a hard act to follow. They're all hard acts to follow. I'd also like to begin very quickly by acknowledging that I'm on stolen land and that this is, was, and always will be Aboriginal land. And it is one of the greatest honors and privileges of my life to be able to share uh, this poetry on land where poems and stories have been shared for thousands of years before. To change a heart and mind is rooted in place, as uh, was alluded earlier and um, alluded to earlier. And it is in the physical and the metaphysical, in a place's stories, in its myths, in its icons, in its collective dreams. So, what what does it look like to dream when you can't afford to, or when you've been under the boot of oppression for so long? I offer you this reimagining, the Museum of Palestine. The air is fragranced with fresh sesame cake and jasmine, and I am waiting for my mother. I am forever running early, hopping on train after train, always towards something. The museum is fluorescent and cool, and the past is distilled and maintained for us. I don't need a ticket here. Welcome, it's free. The smiling woman at the front door says she can see I haven't been before. The tiled domes are handmade and majestic, timeless as our ancestral lineage shaped in our image. There is simplicity, too, in the museum, though the amount of calamity on display seems deceptively complicated and the ramp winds up to floors and floors. From the peripheries, tour guides rotate like planets, eager to assist to tell of hero and of villain. I am still adjusting to all our stories made coherent, curated in a single structure. Sesame seeds trail behind me like a dashed line on a map, but there are cleaners to wipe up my mess. I am reading Darwish in the cafe, where all the waitstaff are also Palestinian. I'm a Muhammad from Jenin, from Haifa, from Bethlehem, 
and all the guests are from everywhere. And none of us ask why they suddenly care after all this time. Perhaps they want to be part of history in the present, where our people are displayed up on walls and in cases and at the back of an exhibition. Thank you. Elegy for a body, a hated body. How many fingers does it take to do what I never thought I would do to this body? Dust shelves, fold sheets, then shove a fist back of the throat to bring order to my body. On Friday nights, I don't sing. I hurtle towards the hate, the sink. This is the only way to accept this body. An unholy ritual, and I am a pilgrim. I cup the ashes, the impurities of some body. I pull and pinch and stretch and scab to be touched just enough by any body. They slip hips on as costume now, and I use a knife to cut to make room for more body. Page after page, I learn my devil, so I learn my God, but can either exist out of body. Dr. Diaz says, the rot is deep, but you are not an unspectacular thing. Lover says, I am tired of carrying this whole body. Don't die, the ancestors say, but they did not prepare me for when I betray and call it body. All these years, I still don't know how to say, forgive me. I am an elegy before I am a body. Thank you. <clears throat> this next poem is dedicated to the cities that changed me and the people that hold me, some of whom are in the audience today, Yasmin, Iman, Bilal, and Tariq. Border Control, Meditations. The questions two young soldiers asked me at the King Hussein border crossing checkpoint. Were you born on a Thursday in Cleopatra Hospital? Did you come out silently as daybreak smudged the night sky, and why was your father absent? What is the name of your father and his father and his father? Dear neighbors, Muhammad and Fatuma water the orphaned houseplant whenever you are away. Are you aware your parents first arrived in Australia with their life savings wrapped in brown paper? Their only English, the lyrics to We are the champions. Did your mother bring two dresses, red polka dot and turquoise taffeta in her peeling 60s suitcase? Did you correct her sanks God? Did she put up a fight when you said you were leaving, when he left? And how was your first Ramadan alone? Did you miss the walnut ma'mool and Allahu Akbar's tossed at you aid mornings? Have you told anyone about the Enid Blyton books you stole from Stanmore Library because your mother worked three jobs? No. If you flatten your gutturals, is it still Arabic? Why did your childhood best friend run away? 
what man siphoned her dry? And why does your grief stick to everything? What remedies did you inherit from your ancestors? What skeletons? Who taught you to roll wet anab like that and does 2 a.m. still grab you by the throat? Amongst the gitans and sewage and Roman ruins can Beirut forgive its people? How many times have you phoned your mother since? Does your grandmother always boil her water twice and why are you still shocked at how things don't work there? What other city turns its war bunkers into clubs, its prayers into curses? And why do the wretched always sell roses on Bliss Street? And how do you revive the dead? Why did they take your brother? Could you make out his face amongst the thousands flickering in the waters of the Mediterranean? Did he return months after the funeral to ask you what wrongs did I commit? What village do you carry on your lips, balance on your breath? Have you been to Jerusalem during olive harvest season? Did you pick and press before the settlers gathered like acid in your chest and poisoned the ancient trees? Have you tired yet of the may Allah have mercies? Have they tired of you? Were you afraid of the men with guns those nights the power cut? Did you splutter your amens and sweat out your tasabih? Do you remember the countries you've lost? Do their crooked rivers still cling to you? And why did it end with your great love who changes everything? Did he make your wide hips tremble with jazz and dirbeke? Did he linger long enough on each letter of Yalil, Ya'in, and the evening news headlines? Did your hurts trail behind him like tangled fishing lines too much for the life he lived? And does weight like that settle or lift? And what of the days you feel the earth graying? And when will you stop writing about borders and bloodshed and war and death and home and home and home. Thank you very much. That is what a Peter Porter Prize winning poet sounds like. Thank you for bringing it all back home. <laughs> Omar Musa is a Bornean Australian author, a visual artist, and a poet from Queen Bian. He's received, released four poetry books, and his latest is Killer Nova. He's also released four hip-hop records and received a standing ovation at TEDx Sydney at the Sydney Opera House. His debut, Here Come the Dogs, was long-listed for the International Dublin Literary Award and the Miles Franklin. He's been named a Sydney Morning Herald Young Novelist of the Year, and his one-man play since Ali died won Best Cabaret Show at the Sydney Theatre Awards in 2018. He's had several solo exhibitions of his woodcut prints, which inform his latest book, Killer Nova, and I hear he has an incredible sambel line, as in the food, um, in Queanbeyan. Could you please welcome Omar Musa? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, this poem is dedicated to the old chestnuts in the peanut gallery, uh, 
to mix a nut metaphor who call me un-Australian. They always say that. So it's also dedicated to Mark Latham and, uh, and ScoMo. Peace. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it goes like this. Let me tell you what's un-Australian. Mate, Australia, it's time we shuffle this country off to deed poll, I reckon, sign the papers, add two letters and rename it. Un-Australia. Un-Australia, an ill-advised artwork defined by negative space. We define selves by what they are not, crude white lies told in blackface. Hey, come watch the parade in Un-Australia. Land of the fair-skinned, fairy-bred, fair guy. Let's put a shark net around the island. Mummify childhoods in barbed wire, but please make sure it's 5,000 Ks out of sight, out of mind, so we can relish our snap crackle. Pop, 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 pop. Watch Fruity Loops bounce around the porcelain. Same colour as the flag we wipe our asses on when we take a plebiscite. Gay postal in Australia, land of the culture wars. Get crop dusted by the heroin white noise of bureaucracy, stunned and softened up. Now jingo grenades bomb sense of self to phantom limb. You know the deal. Axe the tax, stop the boats. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, it's un-Australia, where politicians roll up shirt sleeves and go panning in the mainstream. The river formerly known as Shit Creek. They'll sift up some nuggets of fool's gold, but not even a mining boom could buy compassion. They smear Vegemite vows on the toilet wall. Go on, have a read. That which was written, that which was hidden. Punch drunk love left the bar flies smitten. Drive it like you stole it, get in where you fit in. The brakes wear out when a nation's joy ridden. It's un-Australia. We hear voices detonate from tuck shop to quarter acre block. Freedom of speech! Freedom of speech! But beware the fine print, my friends. All need not apply. If you're black, brown, Muslim, woman, queer, smart, proud and unacknowledged legislator and you dare question a cross-eyed sacred cow, they'll twine newspaper headlines to a noose and lynch you from a daily telegraph pole. So welcome to Un-Australia. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I like to sort of fuck around and talk shit a lot, but um, you know, the fact of the matter is this type of dog, dog whistling that we see um, in our politicians, uh, it has effects on our daily lives, like on our real lives, you know. It's not something that's just sort of happening above our heads and the, the sharp end of a blade that has been sharpening against Muslim people for a long time in this country. I guess the pointy end of that we saw with the Christchurch massacre a few years, it's been three years since then. And when I was last in Christchurch, I went to the mosque and paid my respects. And um, I've always had a very complicated relationship with Islam, but it was important for me to do that. And when I was there, I, um, I thought of a man called Haji Dald Nabi, who famously was at the, at the door of the mosque when the gunman entered. And he said to the gunman before he was killed, he said, hello, brother, and the words of welcome. 
I think that said a lot about him and a lot about uh, community, communities uh, that are often demonised. So it's dedicated to the victims and survivors of the Christchurch massacre and uh, Haji Dawud Nabi. My marrow is a sponge steeped in rum. My septum and heart covered in crystals, rashes of them, shimmering scabs of them. With each pulse, they burst forth a new tumour made of quartz. Pull down my sleeves to cover my tattoos, standing there on the pavement, there where it is too much to bear. There were roses and letters, ponamu green stone and candles burned way down. There is a banner of hope stretched taut as a nerve. Allah, bless our country, land of love and compassion. Kids are playing on the steps while their parents make ablutions, ready still for prayer. Make sure the water goes above the elbow and the ankle, I hear my father say. I cannot enter the mosque though I have no doubt I would be welcome. Hello, brother. The man's last words before Armageddon. Rice, tea, hands, smiles, cloth, whispers, shrouds. Despite everything that is and everything that isn't, these people and I share something not spelled perhaps in any book, not spelled in falling rain or the smoke rising from the mouth of a gun. But still, I cannot enter the mosque. But I raise my hands, cupped lightly to say dua. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. When I was a kid, I used to think that if I held my hands this way, tipped slightly forward, I could catch rain. And if I held still, the water in my palms would become a mirror, or better yet, a window, with which I might be able to see God. I never did. But today, my hands catch tears, and although the water in my palms trembles and shivers, I swear, just for a moment, I swear, it stands still. Finally tonight, we have one last poet, Jazz Money. Jazz is someone who actually informed one of the earliest pieces of criticism that I had published. It was a review of uh, a collection curated by Alison Whitaker entitled Firefront, and I quoted Jazz Money's astonishing poem about how an acknowledgement of country often says, I would like to begin, but there is no beginning, and it's already happening. She's a Wiradjuri poet, and she's an artist currently based on Gadigal land. 
Her practice is centered on the written word. She also produces works that include installation, digital, film, and print media. Her writing has been widely performed and published nationally and internationally, but David Unai, upon winning award uh, collection and her debut, How to Make a Basket, is out now. Can you please welcome Jazz Money? How to follow <laughs> the most incredible performers. I've actually just changed my mind and luckily Sarah had uh, the best of Australian poetry so I could change my mind on the spot um, because there's just so many amazing performances and I, I wanted to finish uh, leaving everyone kind of with the buzz that's been carried through this performance. Um, it's an honour to be here on Gadigal land. It's an honour to be on this stage with these incredible performers and with you all. Um, the first piece I'm going to read is called Still the Night Parrot Sings. It hasn't been properly published. It was written in response to Dean Cross's Icarus, My Son, which was held in the room next door. Uh, he's a wonderful artist. Watch the boy fall sky to dust and through. He doesn't land on that promised confetti, but instead feels the crunch. Something that slips through dreams and cannot be held in morning light. Landing hard on a cold, hard thing. It sounds like a truck tearing across the highway, seen by the country it crosses unseeing. It looks like a cricket bat turned tired, yelling out in Boxing Day backyards of almost and could've Years gone, almost, and he could have been a... Uh... Cuz, is it true that you can move away and slip into a new skin, polish up the nasal in your accent and find ways to never tell the full story of the thing that you will learn the name for in the city? What is it that they say? It's only once there is a distance between yourself and poverty that you might see that it was there all along. Maybe it lives in that back shed. Maybe it lives under those creaking floors. And if you wait long enough in that city, you might even begin to recall housing insecurity in a black eye as some sort of ridgy-ditch bullshit of genuine ascendance. I heard him whisper, did you see him before the fall? Two fists raised and back gleaming, a proper champion for us eyes to gaze upon. Maybe that uncle built him up wrong ways inside this labyrinth, but here's the thing. I am so sick of you force-feeding these myths of elsewhere upon this soil, for we have story plenty and it doesn't end like this. You wrote him to fall, but I can see him rising. It sounds like a whistle in dawn light, a call of soft returning. It's dark out with only the headlights to reveal feather and confetti falling. But yes, cuz, still the night parrot sings. It looks like a man returning, adjusting the flaking ghost gum print hanging proud above the laundry sink. And if you look at him just right in the city glow light of elsewhere, I can see that story true. 
They said falling, but I say rising, I say floating, say returning. Thank you. Uh, the reason I changed to this piece, uh, Mardi Gras, Rainbow Dreaming, is twofold. One, because it's fun to perform in Sydney. Um, and secondly, because it's uh, fun to perform after so many amazing performers. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a bit of a fuck you. Um, so, not to you guys, though, because you're great. <laughs> Mardi Gras, Rainbow Dreaming. The BWS is now a BW, yes, as in yes, queen, as in yes, gay pride, as in yes, we co-opted this lingo from black queer communities on the other side of the world, as in beer, wine, spirits is now a place to drink down some black queer liberation on land stolen that locks up black queer bodies if maybe they've had a bit too much beer, wine, spirits, but won't lock up others who snarl as you walk down the street hand in hand with your miso on your way to have a drink. Gay TMs. It's like an ATM, but it's gayer. Holds your hand after but doesn't leave a number or maybe moves in on Tuesday or maybe pays for medication, yours or Nan's or somebody else's or helps some kid get a mental health care plan to figure out why their body don't seem right but won't grant rights and won't write a check and won't write to government about bodies that don't fit between two ticker boxes but will give you the option for a receipt. Thank you. See you next time. Don't forget your card. Don't forget your cash. Don't forget your yes, queen. And the Google map shows the route in rainbow to the stadium where exec gays and clever rich straights can have front row seats behind the gate to all those genuine gays and all those genuine straights who thought it would be so cute to be on the corporate float this year and march alongside the police who would absolutely never systematically target the queer community and who are absolutely not built on a legacy of doing just that and who absolutely don't uphold a colony that enforces an ideology that makes no space for non-normative bodies, just us to the next lot. Oh, yay, it's the Liberal Party. What a special day, what a lovely float. Thanks for spending all that money so everyone could have a vote. Instagram is for Mardi Gras, and Google is for Mardi Gras, and Absolute is for Mardi Gras, and Vodafone is for Mardi Gras, and Sydney is for Mardi Gras, a tourism campaign. And Mardi Gras is for profits under a rainbow banner that holds no one up, that gives enough rope to make sure that there is one version of a rainbow, and it fits the gaze of execs who had to work so hard to be so correct, and even went to their cousin's wedding. Yes, two grooms. And look, this is what the community want. And look... This is a community with cash. And look, money is for Mardi Gras, and Mardi Gras was a protest, but protest isn't sexy when it's hard or anti-excess. So you can wrap your bigotry in glitter and call it progress for a weekend. And none of these corporations speak up when they come for our rights, but hashtag love is love when everything is over, won and done. The blacks get down on a knee and it doesn't make the broadcast. 
and the cops get run out, run on to, and it doesn't make the broadcast. And the community float gets their 30 seconds and the corporate float gets their 70 seconds. And the protest before the march is the family event that gets run out, run onto by cops who tried to block queer loving protest. And on the walk home down Oxford Street dreaming, we get heckled and listen to others screaming. And men with iPhones ask us to kiss for their private archive. And strangers with long-range lenses take photos for who knows what archive, not asking, yes, queen. Mardi Gras dreaming, Sydney wears its corruptness, never fearing. And no need to shame your rum colony feeding, rum colony breeding, more cops who can run out, run onto those who can't afford to pay. Thank you, thank you, Sydney, for our special diluted day. Thank you so much for joining us. As we've heard tonight, I'd like to reiterate that the revolutionary, the legislative, the political power and potential of poetry is not hyperbole or exaggeration, but very real. And now that we have poetry in awards such as the Stella, and I hope someday when we have classics republished as they are to text publishing's credit, that they will include works of poetry and that we understand that we live in the age of the free market, which is a, a sort of a false moniker. The real freedom is not in markets, but in the liberatory power of poetry and the fact that it can't be tied down except in the way that it frees you, however that may be. And I think we've really understood that in a way that can't be put into words tonight. I'd like to end by um, saying that every poet we've heard from tonight has a book available um, and has incredible power. Um, and, and if you're lucky, you may be able to get a signed copy. Um, I've been uh, Declan Fry. I've been an absolute pleasure to host this. Tony Birch. Um, I'm going to be fair to everyone and just mention one book. Many of them have several. Um, Whisper Songs. Eunice Andrada, Take Care. Sarah Holland Bat, The Jaguar. Um, Madison Godfrey, How to Be True. How to Be Held, Maxine Beneva-Clark, How Decent Folk Behave, um, Sarah M. Saleh in The Best Train Poems 2021 and forthcoming, and Omar Musa, Killer Nova, and Jazz Money in um, How to Make a Basket. Could you please thank all of these amazing writers? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.